Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. It's good to be with you guys. It's been, it seems like forever, um, being able to worship and to, to gather and look forward to to July 4th or 5th, 3rd, whatever that weekend date is. So grateful. A lot of new faces. Um, and so I'll just introduce myself real quick. I'm, I'm Pastor Steve. I'm one of the elders here, uh, but I'm I, not part of the staff pastoral team. So you don't see me as often and I travel quite a bit. Uh, but I always get to preach almost all the time on Father's Day. And I think it's just honoring your elders, honoring your old people, because I'm like, I's the oldest guy in the church and have the oldest kids. So, but it's a, it's a privilege and a joy. And I'm going to be talking with the cold, so forgive me. But I'm going to be talking today about a story that most of us have known. Even if, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of us have some kind of uh, idea or um, th- this view of what the Good Samaritan is. In fact, we, we look across our, our country and we look across culture, we see the Good Samaritan show up in many places. So a lot of hospitals are called the Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, there's the Samaritan's Purse, which is about somebody, you know, about helping people in their greatest time of need. There is, are, are there any doctors or nurses or people in the medical field that are in here? You're probably familiar with something called the Good Samaritan Law. Almost every state has this Good Samaritan Law that protects um, medical personnel if they come up on the scene of an accident and they go to, to help and then helping, they actually cause more damage to that person, there's laws that protect because you were trying to render help. You were trying to be this good Samaritan. We live in a time where a good Samaritan makes the headlines now. We read a story about somebody who does something good and, and that makes big news because we live in a time where we don't see that as much. We don't see that very often. Oftentimes we just uh, let people suffer, let people lay on the side of the road, which is what we're gonna see in this story. I remember the first time when I realized that we live in a world like that. I realized that we live in a world that lacks compassion and that lacks mercy. I was in um, kindergarten and I was walking through school. When I grew up, my, my parents got married when my dad was like 15 and a half and my mom was 16. So they were really, really young. So we grew up in poverty uh, up until my dad went to, into the army and then he got a GED and then he went to college. And, and uh, just by God's grace, he had some opportunities. But while I was this young kid, I mean, we grew up, I had one pair of jeans and one pair of checkered pants that were high waters, you know, they came up to right about here, and they were a little bit too tight. I was a little bit of a chubby kid back then, just a little bit. And I have to wear these pants about every two or three days to school because it was all we had. It was all we had. And I was very self-conscious about that. Uh, And one day I was coming into school with these pants that if I was walking down the streets of Williamsburg, you know, I'd be like the guy. But back back in that time, 
walking into your elementary school with these pants on. And I'm sitting, walking down the hall with my good friend. And I hear from the back of the hall, I hear this kid yell, hey, fat kid, can I play checkers on your pants? And I look over at my buddy thinking, okay, he's going to help me. He's going to defend me here. He starts laughing and runs off. I go straight into the bathroom and they had to come, the teacher had to come and get me because I was stayed in that bathroom just crying and crying. And it was the first time, and I, didn't, I wouldn't use this language back then, but it was the first time that I realized we live in a world that lacks compassion and we live in a world that lacks mercy. And that's what this story is about. It's about showing compassion and showing mercy. So we're gonna start in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It will be on the screen in honor of Father's Day. Actually, I do this all the time. Here's my oldest daughter, Katie, a picture we took about eight or nine years ago together, and it's my bookmarker all the time for my, my messages that I'm preaching. Just a great little reminder of how much I love my daughters. Luke 10, verse 25 says this, just then... An expert in the law stood up to test him, him being Jesus. So this expert in the law stood up to test him. Look, before we even move further in this text, I want you to see a couple of things here. Who is an expert in the law? Well, an expert in the law would be somebody who knows the first five books of the, the Bible, the Torah, uh, almost by heart. They could go for it word by word by word by heart. That's considered the law of Moses. And, and so that is about this much of the Bible. They would be able to recite word for word by heart. They were considered the ones that, that were giving the, the God's laws and commands that they were the ones that were responsible for getting them and getting them right. And he stands up to do what? To test Jesus. To test Jesus. There's something kind of odd about what he just did there. When you stand up, that's a sign of respect, right? My mom taught me when a, when a lady walks in the room, you, you kind of stand up and show honor and you show respect. So this lawyer stands up to put Jesus to a test. From the very beginning, we see in this story that, that the, the expert in the law, the lawyer's heart does not line up with his actions. He's standing up showing Jesus respect, but he's gonna put him to the test. And so he stands up and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks him this question, what do I have to do to inherit, a, inherit eternal life? Now this lawyer should know He's an expert in the law. He knows what the law says. He knows what the Bible says about eternal life. But Jesus responds with a question. He says, what is written in the law? Jesus is like, you're the expert. You tell me. What is written in the law? Where am I doing this wrong, man? All right, man, thanks. If you can put it right about there. He says, you're the expert in the law. What, what does the law say? Just, just tell me what the law says. And we're just going to let it go down. <laughs> Thanks. We got it. Appreciate it. He says, uh, he says what does the law say? Oh, you, how do you read it? And listen how the lawyer answers him. 
this expert in the law, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I'm ready for Jesus to put a smackdown, an intellectual verbal smackdown on this guy. But he answers with this beautiful answer. He's like, listen, the, the law says, the way that I read the law, that if I want to have eternal life, if I want to go to heaven, I've got to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all of my strength. And I get disappointed because I'm ready. I'm ready for him to say something stupid and Jesus just kind of come back at him. But he answers it right. Jesus even says in verse 20, 28, he says, you've answered correctly. He told him, you do this and you're going to live. And Jesus was doing a little play on words with live there. He's saying, you're going to live more abundantly, more fulfilled in this life, but you will also live in that eternal life that you're asking about. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. If you have not asked or you're not asking that question now, um, I would encourage you to. It's a question we should all wrestle with. It's a question we should all ask. It's, it's a question that we need to seek answers for. And Jesus says he gets it right. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Love him with, the, with all of your heart or you know, the things that you uh, just love and that you, that you care for, that that, uh, that, that you, your affections. He says, love him with all of your soul, the, the very essence of who you are. Love him with all of your strength. There should be some vigor. There should be vitality to our love for God. And then he also says, love him with your mind. This, that, that means that there's this intellectual pursuit of knowing more about God and who he is and his ways. I was thinking, how, how do you describe that kind of love for God, right? I think we, we, Jen and I, my wife, when we were dating, she always said she loved everything. So we would be eating eggs and bacon, and she says, oh, I love bacon. We would be talking about a show, and she would say, oh, I love that show. She would, I'd put on some checkered pants, and she would say, I love those checkered <laughs> pants. Never heard that. But everything, and I said, if you ever say, I love you, like, am I going to be more than how you love bacon? Because she used that word all the time. And I think when we say, yeah, I love God. I'm, I, I love him. But what's it mean to love him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and all of your strength? One of the passages and stories in the Bible that I think demonstrates and reflects the kind of love that God is talking about in this verse about loving him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, uh, can be found in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, um, there's a popular song that you've probably heard, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. That, that verse oftentimes is pictured with a deer that's running through a field with some lilies and a nice little brook or stream. Everything seems real calm and peaceful. That's not what this verse is saying, though. That's not this verse at all. The background to this verse is King David is on the run, and he's away from what was considered their church at the time. It was a portable tabernacle, a portable... It was basically a tent, but inside that tabernacle was the very presence of God. 
the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, old movie, but that, that was where the presence of God was thought to be. And so to get into the presence of God, you had to be in and near that tent. But King David could not be near the tabernacle because he wasn't king at the time. There was the king at the time was a guy named Saul. And Saul was after David. Saul had some insecurity issues. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, were like best buddies. And Jonathan loved David more than he loved his own father. Happy Father's Day right there. Uh, He loved David more than he loved his own father, Saul. And this caused Saul to be furious. And and this and other things, the people loved David more. So he was trying to kill David. And David would not fight back against his best friend's father. So he just went on the run. And he's running and he's out. He's away from his home. He's away from the tabernacle. He's away from the presence of God. And in the midst of that, he says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Now the deer in the story is not a deer that is just rummaging through the grass and the fields to see what there is to eat and get a drink of water. In that time, they would hunt deer. They're small deer in the Middle East, but they would use these animals called deer hounds. We still have their uh, deer hounds today. They look a little bit different, but very, probably very similar. And the way that they would hunt these deer hounds, and here's a picture of these, they would take two or three of these big, strong, big uh, snout, large teeth dogs, put them on leather leashes, and the hunter would go out into the fields or into the woods until the dogs would get a scent of the deer. And as soon as those dogs got the scent, they would start pulling against those big leather leashes. They would start growling and starting to run and try to chase this deer. And that's when the hunt was on and the, the hunter would let the dogs off the leash. At that moment, these two dogs would work together to try to tackle the deer, take down the deer from behind. And so as soon as the deer would hear these dogs coming after them, it would take off. Now, the the deer is smaller and more agile and can get into spaces that that these big dogs can't. If it's in an open field, the deer is dead. Its best chance of, of surviving is to get in the real thick of the brush. So imagine this long hunt on a very hot day. This dog's chasing the deers as the deer is back and forth, back and forth, trying to outmaneuver the dogs. This hunt could go on for hours and hours. And as the dogs are chasing, just nipping at its tail and trying to bring down the deer. Finally, maybe by luck, the deer gets into the thick bushes and makes its way into into the woods where the dogs lose scent and lose the track and can no no longer chase and hunt them. At that moment, what do you think the deer's next biggest enemy is? Thirst. Thirst. The the hunt often ended not with the dog catching the deer, but the deer dying of thirst and then the hunter getting the deer. Now think about that verse. As the deer pants for the water after the hunt, so I long for you. God, I just need to be in your presence. I just need to be near you. 
I feel it so bad that I'm like a deer that's going to die of thirst after this long hunt. Jesus said, if you want to experience heaven, if you want to have life, a a more abundant life here, and you want to experience an eternal life in heaven, love me like that. Love me like that. Verse 30, or excuse me, let's go back to verse 29 first. It says this, the lawyer, but wanting to justify himself, the lawyer, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Now think about the arrogance of this guy. He didn't, he didn't ask, you know, he just said there's, there's two ways to get, there's two things you have to do for eternal life. You've got to love God and you've got to love your neighbor He didn't ask Jesus, so how do I love God better? What does it mean to love God? No, he's just trying to justify himself. He's trying to make himself bigger than he is. He's trying to make himself more pure than he is, trying to make himself more righteous than he is. And he says, so who's my neighbor, Jesus? The lawyer, in his first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, He was a smart lawyer. Lawyers, when they ask questions in court, they know what the answer is already going to be. They already know the answer. And then he asked a second question, and it wasn't being too smart because he didn't know what Jesus was going to answer or how he would answer this question. But he's trying to justify himself. He says, so so who is my neighbor, Jesus? And so Jesus takes up this question and and said to him, He takes it up by telling a story, and this is the story that we're all very familiar with. He says, listen, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. That word beat just means this repeated blows to him. They beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, I love this story. It's a parable. Jesus is telling a a parable, but it's a parable about something that could really happen. It's something that as soon as he started saying, a man went from Jericho, or excuse me, from Jerusalem down to Jericho on this road, he was beaten and he was stripped and he was left for dead. See, this road is actually a real road that exists. Uh, Rasul and I went to Israel probably about four years ago, I think, and we saw parts of this road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it actually goes from the top of this mountain down. So when he says he's going down this road, he's actually going down. And this road had this reputation of being this uh, really seedy place to be. You never traveled alone on this road. So the fact that this man was by himself, all of a sudden, people in the audience could possibly be thinking, well, that's what he gets for going by himself. Everybody knows you don't go by yourself on that road. But this, this had a, a reputation for being a, a seedy road. It was about 18 miles long, and it dropped about 4,000 feet in elevation from the top to the bottom, and it became known as the Way of Blood. That was its nickname, because there was all these kind of cro- uh, rocky outposts, and people would hide behind these rocks, and then they would grab and rob people as they were coming down this road. So this man was coming down. So Jesus is telling this story that, that everybody would all of a sudden easily be able to relate to. There's this man laying on the side of the road. We don't know anything about him. 
We don't know his ethnicity. We don't know his faith. We don't know where he's from or anything. He's stripped, beaten, laying naked on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden, Jesus introduces some hope into the story. He says, a priest just happened to be going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. A priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So Jesus introduces this hope, and then he just snatches it away. Now, when we look at this priest, I feel like I've got to defend him, because I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. Don't call me father or anything, but I'm not. But I feel like I got to, he's, he's kind of in my club, so I feel like I got to defend him a little bit. Why would the priest perhaps pass him by? We don't know for sure. This is a parable. Jesus is telling a story, but here's what we do know about the priests during that time. The priests were the religious, not only the religious leaders of their community, but they were the social leaders of their communities. They were the political leaders of their community. Everything really kind of hinged around the priest in that day within their community. The priest, if he was going from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho on the same road, most likely he was spending time at the temple. And if he was at the temple, what he was doing was going through these series of, of cleansing rituals, not only for himself, but for his family and his entire community, which would have involved this, this elaborate time of, of going through this washing ceremony. It would have involved sacrificing some type of, some type of animal. This would have cost a lot of time, probably about, I think if I remember right, it's about 12, about 12 days is the, the, is the process for going through this cleansing process and the sacrifice and the, the travel and everything. And it would cost a lot of money. Now the priest had just gone through this entire process and was considered clean at that time. And if he were to come upon someone that was bleeding, battered, bruised, and perhaps dead and touch that person he would consider himself unclean and would have to march right back up that mountain and go through that entire process again. All the while, his family and his community is without their spiritual, their social, political leader. It was a big decision. I don't think he just said, ah, I'm too busy for this. I gotta, I gotta get home. I think it was a big decision for him. But he weighed that decision and he walked on by. Verse 32. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed the other side. So the Levite, you have the priest who's kind of like the, the top of the, the structure, the top of the, the pinnacle of the system. And the Levite is a couple of notches below him. He's a religious leader within the community. He doesn't have as much clout. He doesn't get paid as much as the priest and definitely does not have the influence the priest does. But he's going to take his cues from the priest. And you're going down a steep mountain. You see what's happening below you. If he sees the priest walk on by, he's going to take the same path the priest did and walks right on by him. And again, I feel like I've got to defend these guys a little bit. We do the same. I mean, we're confronted every day with opportunities to help people. We live in New York City. Every day we're confronted and we have to make a decision. Am I going to help this person or am I going to walk on by? 
Am I going to extend some mercy and grace and compassion to this person? Or am I going to walk on the next train so they don't see me and can't ask me? Every day we make this decision. In fact, when you think about, when you think about our country and our world, um, there's 123,000 orphans that live in the United States. 123,000 at any given time. There are 300,000 Protestant churches in our country. If every two churches would adopt one of those orphans, there would not be an orphan issue. Every night, about 4,000 people will go to sleep on the streets. It is the, we have the highest amount of homelessness in New York City since the 1930s depression. Now, there's a lot more homeless than that. There's, I think, about 55,000 people that are homeless in New York City, but they have shelters for about 51. I think those numbers are right. About 4,000 will sleep every night on the streets. And we walk by them, and we, we know that the, it's, it's, it's a complex issue of mental health and perhaps addiction and, there's, and, and economics. There's a lot of things. But we use those excuses oftentimes just to, to walk on by. So let's not be too hard on these guys because we do it. Verse 33. But a Samaritan... So you have the priest, who's the pinnacle of society. You have the Levite, who's a well-respected religious social leader. And then you have the Samaritan. The Samaritans were considered the lowest on the, of the ladder of social structure. They were hated by the Jews. They were despised. They were considered unclean. Uh, they, were, they were called half-breeds. Because it was the Samaritans were uh, when the Jewish people were in, in prison and excuse me, in, enslaved, they would uh, connect and they would marry their in, in captors. And the children, the offspring of those relationships were the Samaritans. So they were despised and hated by most Jewish people and the religious leaders. So Jesus introducing a Samaritan in this story is a little bit scandalous. This is where the story, and this crowd would have started getting a little bit, okay, what's he going to say now? A Samaritan. So, so when a Samaritan on his journey, he came up, and when he saw the man, he had what? What's it say he had? It says he had Compassion. The Samaritan, the, the person that's most or least respected within, the, within all of the, the characters of this play had compassion. In fact, it says that when he arrived, excuse me, it says um, the Samaritan on his journey came up to him. He didn't pass by him. He saw him and he came up to him. And it said he had compassion on the man. This word compassion, splanknezomi, uh, zomai, I think, is, is the Greek. And it literally means like it makes your bowels turn. You know when you get like, you feel something in, in your guts and it just makes you ache and hurt inside? That's the word. It's the root word to the word spleen. It's, it's, you can feel it in your guts. So not only did he see him, and I'll be honest, this is how I often respond when I see a need, right? I'm like, ah, let me, 
give some money, let me give some time, let me help out a little bit. Almost as much for my own sake as that person's sake. It's like, I can give a few dollars and I have a few dollars and we can move on. But no, this guy was driven by compassion. It's the same word that Jesus talks about, that talks about Jesus happening when he saw the crowds of people that were helpless and sheep without a shepherd. It said he had compassion on them. It's the exact same word. So the Samaritan sees this man and he has that kind of compassion, that kind of inner feeling towards this guy's situation. It says he went over to him and he bandaged his wounds and he was pouring on olive oil, not sprinkling on. He was being generous and he was pouring out the olive oil and the wine for his wounds. Then he put him on his own animal. Now, if he puts him on his animal, what's the Samaritan doing? He's walking. He's inconvenienced. He's walking. He put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and to take care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is about two days' wages. A couple of things there. It says the next day. What's that mean? He spent time with him. He stayed with him. It wasn't like, well, let me just get this guy to an inn. I've got some cash. I'll flip it to him, and then we're good to go. No, he stood with him. He, t- he stayed with him the whole night. And the next day, he took out about two days of wages, and he gave it to them. And he gave it to the innkeeper and he said this, take care of him. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spent. Then verse 36 says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So Jesus comes back with a question for the lawyer. He said, who... Who's the neighbor? Your question, your first question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. It goes, that goes back to Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, something called the Shema. And then the second question is, well, who's my neighbor then? I'm supposed to love God like this and love my neighbor as myself. Who, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story, and he asks him, so who's the neighbor? And then verse 37, listen to the lawyer's response. He can't even say the word Samaritan because of the hatred for the people. Verse 37, he says, the one who showed mercy to him. The one who showed mercy to him. The lawyer was expecting an easy answer from Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Well, the people you live near, your friends, your family members, those are your neighbors. Jesus tore that down. He, he, He removed that idea of neighbor and destroyed and built this new concept of who your neighbor is. And your neighbor is the one who needs compassion and the one who needs mercy. The one who needs compassion and the one who needs mercy. Your neighbor is not your person that lives in the same building with you. Your neighbor is not your family and your friends in this church. 
your neighbor is the one who needs compassion and mercy. And then Jesus, second part of verse 37, he says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Martin Luther King Jr. had a, had a, actually preached, I think this may have been one of his last sermons that he preached before he was assassinated. In, in his sermon, he said this, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed that question. He says, if I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? See the difference in that question? If I stop and help, what will happen to me? But from that to, if I don't stop and help, what will happen to him? What will happen to her? What will happen to them? And so Jesus turns this whole concept of neighbor on its head and says, no, your neighbor is those that need compassion and mercy. And so you're surrounded by neighbors every day in New York City because there are so many people that need compassion and mercy around here. This is one of my favorite verses. Um, I, I, I love the story. I've always loved the story of the Good Samaritan. It played a, a role in me becoming a believer in, in Christ. And I would see this story, and I've taught on this passage so many times. And let me tell you how I ended that sermon. Here's how I would always end that sermon. I would try to, I didn't have a cold then, but I would try to get my best preacher voice that I could. And I said, your neighbor is the one in need of compassion and mercy. Now go and do likewise. You know, I try to be real authoritative. And I would say, go and do likewise. If you want to get to heaven, if you want to understand what eternal life is and you want to have a more fulfilled life now and eternal life in heaven, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. As the deer pants for the water, after the hunt, you've got to love God that way. Now, love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Anyone in need of compassion and mercy. Anyone in need of compassion and mercy. But there was something wrong in my soul when I would preach this message. There was always something that I just did not feel right about. Telling people to love God that way and then explaining to them biblically who their neighbor is. And here's what it is. When I think about loving God like the deer pants for the water after the hunt, and I think about loving somebody and, and sacrificing and, and getting whatever they need in the moment of their depths. When I think, who do I love like that? There's only one person. Eyes came back to me. It eyes came back to me. Who do I make sure when they're uncomfortable, I do everything I can to find comfort? Myself. When there's a need that I, I want to make sure that I meet that need, it's for myself. I don't love God that way all the time. I mean, I have my moments 
but I don't love him that way all the time. Then God showed me something one time as I was preparing to share this story with something. The original question is what must I do to inherit eternal life? You cannot take the story of the Good Samaritan away from that original question. We often use the story of the Good Samaritan just to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And what Jesus did in in telling this parable was he set up an impossible circumstance. Love God this way, love your neighbor this way. And your neighbor is anybody, anyone, anyone in need of compassion, anyone in need of mercy. And I can't do that. But Jesus was saying, you got to quit looking at the story and thinking you're the Levite or you're the priest or you're the good Samaritan. The truth is all of us in the room are the one that's laying at the side of the road, beaten and left for dead. And Jesus, the good Samaritan, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one that came down. He didn't come down a mountain from Jerusalem to Jericho. He came from heaven to earth. He didn't give up a couple days of wages and a night at an inn. He gave up his life on the cross. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And you'll never get this story You'll never understand the joy of salvation until you see Jesus is the one who does this for us. That is the good news of Jesus Christ right there. That is the gospel. That when you are dead, beaten on the side of the road, completely helpless, completely hopeless, there's only one person that can come and save you from that, and that's Jesus Christ. That doesn't take away the responsibility for loving God and and being a good neighbor. But don't lose the focus of the story in Jesus saying, that's me. I'm the only one that can truly live out this parable. So as you are trying to love God, as the deer longs for the water after this long hunt, and as you are trying to show compassion and mercy to your neighbor, just remember That compassion and mercy has already been shown to you in the work of Jesus Christ. And if you would simply receive God's love, don't fight it, just take it. Receive his healing as he pours on the oil and the wine to heal your soul and life. Then you can have that eternal life that he talks about in Scripture. I pray today that that is something that you will wrestle with. And if you have any questions about what that means, I pray you will talk to me or Pastor Rasul or email us, send us a message because we would love to share with you about the real good Samaritan and what he has done for you. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in our broken world, You are still the Good Samaritan, Lord. You are still healing. You are still sacrificing and giving through your people, Lord, through your church, because you've already given the ultimate sacrifice, and that is your life for our salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would just focus on you 
as that good Samaritan, the one who came from heaven to earth to take away our brokenness, to take away our battered, bruised, sinful bodies and replace it with something new. And that's a relationship with you so that we can grow and learn how to love you better. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do that. In your son's precious name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.